John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. accessed Omnibus Addenda Volume 9 Entry 707.DA0414 Certificate number 25458 The Leaf Blower We're going back to the Leaf Blower because they've been in the news. We're taking it all the way back. This is over half a year ago. It is. How are Leaf Blowers in the news? Oh, you scoff, but Stuart wrote us to note that uh, as of late October of last year, they had started to become widely used by the pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong. Uh, uh, to do what? To blow, blow to, the to, police back? To make their lawns look nicer. Hmm. Like, just because you're a pro-democracy protester doesn't mean you want a messy lawn. When I think of Hong Kong, I think of big, just the spra- spacious the lawns. The sprawling lawns. That's what I like about <laughs> Hong Kong. Uh, no, they are apparently a super... Effective countermeasure, recently discovered, to tear gas and pepper spray. Of course! Wow! So if you've got Chinese cops coming at you with tear gas, these guys just start up their leaf blowers, and they can, they can point it like a, like a tactical weapon and blow the tear gas back from whence it came. How smart. And so as of last October, these have been used pretty effectively in Hong Kong. And the, in the wake of the George Floyd protests... Uh, this summer, U.S. protesters have started using them as well. I don't remember seeing anyone at the chop using leaf blowers to blow the... No. Well, I mean, they could have used it on some of the litter, in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) Sing it, sister. That chop was sure dirty. It was... Littery. It was a fun festival for about a week. Yeah. But... Did you buy any tanzanite there? (laughs) I don't think they had any tanzanite. I dropped off some Gatorade. We, uh, I was up there the day after they had rousted people from the park, and it was like nothing had ever happened. Is that right? Yeah. Completely cleaned the te- up? The, 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 the tents were gone. They had mown. The, par- the Parks and Rec Service had mown Cal Anderson Park. It was like no one had ever been uh, mad about police brutality there at all. You know, they've decamped to the Seattle Central Community College campus. That's what I heard. And the president of the college is, uh, is, you know, is very supportive of Black Lives Matter. And explicitly saying that whole plaza right there is designated a protest zone, but you can't live there. I assume that, I mean, that's what happened last time. You know, the there ended up being shootings and stuff because, yeah. you know, once you say you're a... You're well, a, a Christiana. A, 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 yeah, a, a sufficient, self-sufficient commune, you're going to get, you're going to get all, you can't control the borders. 
Although there were guys with guns at the checkpoints when I drove in there, so <laughs> you can try, I guess. So, uh, so leaf blowers are now a powerful anti-authority measure, and you should feel like a like a a good woke citizen just by owning one. Well, let me guess that it's not going to be that long before police outlaw leaf blowers. I mean, during the WTO protests, the police in Seattle tried to make gas masks illegal. It was it was briefly they tried to make showing up to the protest with a gas mask, a gas mask, uh, illegal. And I don't see how you could do that. It's like yeah, it's like uh, it's like saying that the Star Wars SDI measures was destabilizing the Cold War. We we want to ban <laughs> defense systems because then our weapons don't work on you. That's right. Uh, so it can't be long before if you show up at a protest with a leaf blower that the, the cops are going to single you out. I mean, we should definitely keep an eye on attempts to ban leaf blowers under other cover because some jurisdictions have just for noise reasons. Of course. I was, uh, there were some, th- we have a couple college kids that come and, and trim our hedges and stuff and they were out there with a leaf blower. Is that a blower. euphemism? Yeah, exactly. I like to have a college Dear kid. Dear penthouse forum. Come in <laughs> and trim my hedge. Uh, it's getting a little, it's getting Bushy. a little leafy in quarantine. <laughs> And so I came outside to the front lawn. I was taking out some trash, and I said hi to the guys. And one of them, and one of them was using a leaf blower. And I was like, "Hey, are, are, is Seattle gonna like ban those? Like some of those California towns did?" And he had some stories. He had some, uh, you know, angry neighbors that are yelling at him when he's trying to blow leaves, even if it's right, you know, one in the afternoon or whatever. Maybe they're doing a podcast. I don't know. He was like, "Too many Karens. There's just too many Karens." Ugh. Those Karens. In, in Leshy or, or wherever they're working. He's like an African-American kid. And then the next time I saw him, he was like, hey, I got an idea. Like, you should tell Jeopardy they should have a category about famous Karens. Famous Karens. Jeopardy stays out of that kind of street politics, don't they? They do. Yeah. Like, if Jeopardy did famous Karens, it would be like Karen Carpenter, <laughs> Karen, Karen Black, right. <laughs> Karen Valentine. Uh, in this case, he actually wanted there to be a category where it was like, that lady yelling at the black kids with the barbecue. Right. The the lady uh, with the dog uh, yelling at the bird watcher. Well, now why doesn't Jeopardy do like a, a like cool Jeopardy, like the the same way that Trivial Pursuit did, like Trivial Pursuit of the seventies, music Trivial Pursuit. Why doesn't Jeopardy franchise and have like like you remember the famous Saturday Night Live Black Jeopardy? Yeah, it was one of the greatest episodes of but that show. But could you show. imagine if they actually had Black Jeopardy? Black Jeopardy? That's not a good luck. Are you kidding me? It would be the most watched show on television. <laughs> they did actually, they spun off Rock and Roll Jeopardy and Sports Jeopardy. Oh. I think both of them ran for a couple of years, so they were kind of modest successes, but didn't last. Boy, Sports Jeopardy, that's a bar I will not go into. There's you, you could, you could, a sports bar? You could, no, Sports Jeopardy bar. You could, you could hide... You could steal my child and hide her from me inside of a sports trivia bar, and I would never find her. <laughs> it's there are two kinds of trivia people. There's sports and everything else. Right. And I think that you know sports Jeopardy was, but that's segregation, man. Sports trivia. If you're not going to have Black Jeopardy, you shouldn't have sports fans only Jeopardy. I think you should have Black Jeopardy, and you should not have sports Jeopardy because we all live in an inescapable network of mutuality, as Dr. King said. Here, here. I always like that quote because it really sounds like Dr. King would like to escape the mutuality. He's like, we live in an inescapable, like, look, as much as you guys, I would, I wish we did not have to do this, but we live in a society. I guess he was, you know, a secret introvert or something. And he, he, you know, he just wanted to, to go home and, and, and read his, uh, read his books. My feeling about Martin Luther King is that he's pretty, he, he reads as an introvert. 
He's very busy. He's out talking to people all the time. And good at it, but obviously. I just Eloquent. Feel, I just feel that he was more introverted than, than his job might have He would just like to be on. in a hammock with a lemonade, but, but the times did not allow. That's right. Well, he thank was, you. He was called. Thank you, Dr. King, for your sacrifice. We know you just wanted to be... For this additional sacrifice on, uh, you know, in addition to all the other sacrifices. Well, he got shot. Yeah. That, that's a pretty big sacrifice. Well, and also he, like, devoted his entire life to a cause. And, but, yeah, but what we're saying is he would have liked to have been just uh, home, home uh, uh, yeah. pruning his hedge. Just, just watching, uh, watching the morning show on what? HBO. I feel like the inescapable web of mutuality is ripe for, um, for like Marvel comics to, to brand that as some sort of, uh, like space hell. Oh no. Thanos (laughs) has the inescapable network of mutuality. (laughs) Entry 328.DE0203. Certificate number 35435. The de Havilland Beaver. Uh, Brian must be some kind of aerospace engineer because... A lot of them um, among futurelings. 98% of our listeners are aerospace engineers, which is... That can't be true of the general population. Uh, It's true of all of my shows, though. It's true of Seattle, maybe. Uh, Everyone in this neighborhood is. Is that true? uh, Either an aviation engineer or pilot or specialist of some kind. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm silver medallion on Delta. Yeah, me too. We mentioned (laughs) (laughs) in that show, I guess we mentioned the mosquito. Is that a, that's a wooden plane. A mosquito is a, is a, uh, is a a British fighter plane of world war two. I see. And it's made of wood, which, which is a novelty wood frame, not, not a novelty then, but a novelty now. Right. But, uh, Brian pointed out that wood is actually a great, material for planes it's uh, he says it's very i think i sent you this it's very similar to the the space age you know the the new carbon fiber and and fiberglass stuff we make it's flexible it's light right an isotropic matrix supporting directional fibers oh it's directional so so stresses are born differently yeah and apparently wood is very effective the plywood skins of the fuselage they oriented the, you can orient the boards to give the to give the flexibility you want. For example, the mosquito had better yaw control and rudder performance. Uh-huh. So that I guess in an, in an aluminum aircraft or aluminium perhaps, when the rudder deflects, it also twists the fuselage. Right. So the rudder is less uh, efficient. But the plywood means if you if you put the boards the right way, the fuselage tube can't twist. The rudder will always be perpendicular. To the wings. That's lovely. You know, we got a lot of mail from people. Maybe it was all directed at me, but I said at one point that that airplanes were made of steel or stainless steel, and uh, a lot of people were. Brian also pointed that yeah, out. That it that aluminium, um, that steel airplanes would be. There uh, are steel airplanes. He said they just h- handle about like you'd think. Yeah, they would be heavy and bad handlers, whereas lighter metals um, are are the preferred metals for. Airplanes. And maybe we'll go back to wood. And you know what? What that uh, what that evinced was my lack of metallurgical education, not a lack of aeronautical engin- education. Although I am not an aeronautical engineer, I should say that before every show. Disclaimer: John and Ken, though they are about to speak knowledgeably about the Noid, are not aeronautical, aeronautical engineers. engineers. Nor are we uh, hydrologists. Don't, if we, just because we say, uh, you know, go jump off a cliff and flap your wings, 
It just, doesn't mean it's going to work. Just because I say, if you see a black bear, kick it, doesn't mean you should kick it. Once again, you were referring to a show that we recently recorded, but which no one will hear for months. This is a special treat of the Addenda episodes, is you get to hear callbacks to jokes that will not be out until autumn. That's right. Well, What the, a treat for you. The thing is, we don't talk about time travel on this show. It's There are too many conundrums. We don't talk about time travel. We live it by doing these jokes out of order. Entry 1277.IS5411. Certificate number 48596. Tanzanite. This is another callback. Tanzanite, the 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 uh, the most favored gem of uh, of the Capitol Hill uh, op- operating principle. Do you think that the Tanzanite market is just crashing without um, cruise ships and luxury resorts right now? Must be. Although, wasn't there Tanzanite was just recently in the news? That is what. Let me see. Uh, that is what Ryan wrote to remind us and i had not seen this you saw this thing oh i i, I was super excited the uh, the the largest tanzanite ever found in june 2020 a, a tanzanian miner and apparently it says a small scale miner so maybe it's just a guy with his own operation it was yeah not not part of the industrialized mining complex but there are there are like independent miners good in for, tanzania good for this guy i hope he got one of those ppp loans sananio laser I mean, he's already got a leg up because his last name is Laser. Yeah, it's a hot name. That's pretty good. Do you think he's related to Laser Wolf, the butcher in Fiddler on the Roof? Uh, no, I think that he probably is descended from the inventors of the laser who live in Wakanda. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Wakanda had the laser long before we did. Uh, they He found, let's see, two... Rough, you know, some uncut tanzanite stones. Well, it's unusual that he didn't find pre-cut tanzanite stones. (laughs) I mean, that would be weirder, uh, unless he broke into a cruise ship. Combined weight of 33 pounds on these two. And there's a picture of him holding them, and they are about the size of a loaf of bread. Whoa! I mean, even cut, these things are going to be ginormous. They're the largest find ever in the country. Uh, And as a result, he earned $3.5 million dollars. From the country's mining ministry. I don't know why you have to go to the Tanzania mining ministry. You can't just go on eBay. So they bought it directly from him. Yes. Well, it probably made it easier. It would be hard for him to go to the cruise ships directly and say... The largest Tanzanite rock ever mined previously was only three kilograms. So each of these is uh, over twice as big as the previous record. That's fantastic. Uh, This is my favorite line in the BBC story. There will be a big party tomorrow. Mr. Laser, a father of more than 30 children, told the BBC. Of more than 30 children? <laughs> yes. Perhaps Mr. Laser himself is not clear on the number. Of all of the people who needed to find a $3 million Tanzanite, that's a... Uh, Mr. I mean, Mr. Laser, 52, who has four wives, said he would slaughter one of his cows, not oh, wives. Oh, interesting. Slaughter one of his... You thought I was going to say wives. No, I thought you were going to say goats, but cows, children. even better. He would better. slaughter one of his cows to celebrate... He also plans to invest in his uh, community by building a shopping mall and a school. This is me. I'm not educated, but I like things run in a professional way. Yeah. Yeah. I think we can all agree with that. I agree with that 100%. He said the windfall, it seems like he's doing okay. He said the windfall will not change his lifestyle. and He plans to continue looking after his 2,000 cows. 
This guy know, does everything big. This guy is like a... 2,000 cows. Four, this guy's like a fairy tale king or something. Four wives, 30 children, 2,000 cows. And yet he still has time to do a little bit of mining on the side. He still has time to mine football-sized uh, Tanzanite stones. I have to imagine that within his community, there are people who resent him. Oh, they all look very happy in the picture. For they're going to they're gonna get a new shopping mall. But you know, like if you if your neighbor found two footballs of tanzanite, and wouldn't you be like, oh, God, he already had two thousand cows." Especially if it's the guy that already has four wives. Exactly. When so I, this is why you can't tax the rich. They won't have all that spare time to go dig up tanzanite. When I when I have traveled overseas, I've I've uh, more than once been asked by someone uh, who who's trying to like figure out exactly how wealthy Americans are. You know, they recognize that. Americans are wealthy. They know that that your average American is incredibly wealthy relative to them, but they but they're not sure exactly how to measure it. And so I've been asked more than once how many cows I have. And when I say I don't have any cows, there's a kind of an incredulous look like, "Okay, yeah, all right. But how many cows do you have?" They feel like you're being too modest. Yeah, and I'm like, "None. I have zero cows. There's no I don't have a single cow." And they're like, Right, 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 right. But come on, just between us, like, number of cows. Entry 214.RO0116. Certificate number 31387. Chick tracts. Uh, I think we've addended the chick tracts before, but uh, I want to addenda the addenda. Wait, is this actually an addenda of an addenda? Is that okay? Is someone addendaing a prior addenda, or are they addendaing chick tracts again differently? I believe they are addendaing chick tracts differently. Okay. I don't know if we have yet to have an addenda of an addenda, because then the universe would disappear. We haven't been doing addenda episodes long enough for future links to start taking issue with one another. Uh, David... Chelsea, the Portland cartoonist who enjoys the show, and you should check out uh, his work. I've enjoyed his books very much. He wrote in to applaud us on our Jack Chick entry. He's actually done parody Chick tracks himself, which are very good. And he uh, he noted, and I think we should have pointed this out, that to him, Chick tracks represent the great, well, apart from, aside from gospel music, he says, Chick tracks are hmm. the great American religious art form. Because hmm. Europe, of course, has produced galleries and galleries full of religious art. It's what right. it's what drove it's what drove the Renaissance. Right. But uh, what are the what is the great American religious art? Isn't it that that raw vision stuff where somebody in in Milwaukee pins one thousand Barbie dolls to the inside of their their gardening shed and people only discover it after they're dead? What's the religion? They're voodoo. Uh, no, uh, but they're like uh, they're Barbie dolls that have. Like crosses etched into their eyes. I don't oh, know. I'm not an expert on raw vision art, <laughs> but it all seems to have to do with Jesus somehow. Yeah, apparently American religious art is very schlocky. We associate it with like that. Um, what's the name of the painter that's always painting Obama peeing on the Constitution while Trump weeps? Or oh, or yeah, you, you know Nixon and uh, and Thomas Jefferson together. Uh, Playing cards with Rudy Giuliani, yeah, kneeling well with a with the ghost of a soldier over a fallen f- comrade or something with yes. a flag in the background, while a, while a hippie, um, uh, what blows his nose on the on yeah on the right Mayflower on a, compact on a diaper or something McLaughlin McLaughlin whatever that guy I know the work but I didn't I've never I've never enjoyed it enough to go look in the bottom corner and see what what the signature of the artist is you know I'm I'm after David Horsey started. 
uh, started falling off. I stopped. I stopped really caring about American art. He fell off the horsey. That's not true. But uh, but he points out, and I, I think it's a good point that you know gospel music really is the great American religious art form, right? Um, better than Dylan's Christian records. But uh, what about what about brutalist houses of worship? Are there brutalist churches? Well, have you ever been to to the the um, surely you have the Anglican. A cathedral on Capitol I, Hill. I guess that counts, right? That's <laughs> got brisen. that's got big, thick. I mean, it's it's it, they've it's lightened a, it up with a dome and, a, and stained glass no, windows. It's one hundred percent concrete slabs. I used to go to church in a Quonset, so I don't even notice that kind of stuff anymore. We should. We, I don't even have a TV. We still haven't. <laughs> is that the new? I don't have a TV. I used to go to church in a Quonset. <laughs> I used to go to church. Look, in I used Quonset. to go to church in a Quonset. You can't talk to me about that. The great American religious art is chick tracks. Do you think we're ever going to do brutalism in the omnibus? We keep I, it's on my low. list. It's on my. Uh, it's on my short list. It's just I don't know. Two things. How do you address brutalism? Brutal. Uh, you call it sir, I guess. Or, but or also, it'll fall on you, sir and ma'am. But also, uh, you know, I have such strong feelings about it, and I'm, I'm sure you have strong feelings about it, although you mask your strong feelings. I dislike part brutalism. Of your culture. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, you know, we're going to get I, – I haven't, I haven't done it because I don't want to get a thousand angry letters from, from um, like – From br- people who actually have, yeah, have a take? Like brutalist backers who are like, you have no idea what you're talking about as we sit and spend an hour railing on it. I but, think we should do it anyway. All right, we can tell we can tell them we're gonna we're gonna ignore the emails. Oh yeah, that's right. We do we do tell them that this is a this but, is not a conversation. But we read the emails. This is the sad thing about us. This is not a conversation. Make your own podcast about how brutalism is so good. I like David Chelsea's work, by the way. Yeah, he's uh, he's very talented. Yeah, and uh, he was saying he just got a new uh, uh, a new art job, which is nice because I'm sure this is a tricky time for artists of all kinds. He kind of looks like our friend Buzzy. I don't know. A little bit. I don't know if I could picture... Uh, well, you can definitely picture Buzzy. You saw him un- just recently. Unfortunately, I can picture Buzzy, but I'm not sure I can picture... Oh, yeah. He does kind of have that uh, the owlish look. Yeah. He's got a little bit of a... Uh, it's a, it's, it's, you know, it's a classic look. Grown-up Harry Potter, right? basically, right. Is, is the aesthetic. And the other note about uh, Chick Tracks actually came from my brother, who listens to the show. Oh, your brother. Former uh, l- lawyer for... For uh, mid-level marketing. Again, a reference to a show that has not been released, <laughs> I'll point out. <laughs> I'm just going to start doing it now. It's my bit. You can call it out every time, or you can leave them in as Easter eggs for people. Yeah, I guess it'll it'll confuse people, but only for a matter of months. Yeah, do, you, do you ever mind confusing a listener for three months? No, I think that's that's that's, that's the, my preferred that's the length. perfect length of time. The thing is, it, it, it inspires... I, I had an interesting conversation with my daughter the other day. I, she, she asked me what deja vu was, and I described it. And she said, I have that feeling, but my interpretation of it is that when I'm in the present thinking that I've had this experience before, Mm -hmm. what it really is, is evidence that in the past, I could see the future. (laughs) I knew I was going to have this feeling. I had this feeling in the past, but it was, it was, it was being able to foretell the future, not that I'm now falsely remembering having been here before. But then why don't we ever remember it the first time? Why do we only remember it on the flip side? I guess it's just more memorable the second time. You know, I think Uh, she's describing like the sense impression and how, how she's making sense of whatever deja vu is, which is, you know, some crossed wire. Um, But that was her take on it. I can't can't wait till she's a teenager licking weird Amazonian plants and having 
and having uh, peyote experiences. <laughs> Little her ayahuasca experiences. That's right. But I, but I think the idea of me referencing shows that haven't aired yet in addenda episodes is that we're what we're doing is sowing potential deja vu moments for Patreon subscribers. And I think they are going to have deja vu. Do you remember anything anyone has ever said in a podcast? I don't. I've never listened to a podcast. I have no way of knowing. I don't even know what they are. But but, but uh, somebody's going to listen. Somebody will, uh, a multi-level marketing is going to come up on the omnibus at some point and somebody will have deja vu and not remember that they heard you mention it on the. Right. Or they the will agenda. say, oh yeah, I always knew that Ken's brother was a, was a lawyer for a multi-level marketing. Yeah. I don't know where I knew that from. Probably read it in a magazine article. What an odd magazine that would be. <laughs> Podcaster Brother Monthly did a spread on uh, on Nathan Jennings. He listens to the show. Now, I don't think he listens to the addenda because he's not a donor. Come on, Nathan. Uh, but he was, last time I saw him, we went to Utah a couple weeks ago and I saw him. And he had listened to the Chick Tracks episode where I mentioned my high school math teacher who had a stack of them on the, on the windowsill, seemingly oblivious to the anti-Mormon and anti-Catholic rhetoric, anti-Jewish, anti Really, pretty everything. much everybody. Yeah. yeah, everybody that's not like he's even anti anti John Calvin, right? It's, I mean, it's, yeah, it's like the emo Phillips joke about the which you know which sect, which which synod, uh, and he said, you know, I want to stick up for Mister DeFranco. That was the guy's name. He said, when I when we moved to Singapore, this is after I was in college. After we moved to Singapore, I uh, I signed up for some kind of a. Christian retreat, a multi-school Christian retreat, because, you know, you, you got a trip to, I don't know where it was. It was in Kuala Lumpur or something. And the com- I was accepted to go, and then I was disinvited from the trip when they found out I was Mormon. Really? Because that's not uncommon in, in evangelical circles. To think, oh, of, oh, to think of Mormons not just as a... Um, not a sect of not evangelical. Just as, not just as a, as a separate Christian sect, but literally like a heretical right, cult. right, right. Uh, and Mr. he said, Mr. DeFranco from far away Seoul foreign school, uh, stood up for me and said, no, no, I've had Nathan, all the Mormon kids I've had at our school are really good Christians. Huh. And, uh, he intervened, he intervened. And even though this guy owned all these anti-papist tracts, he stood up and got my brother to allowed to go to some Vita Nueva Christian retreat or something. And so did your brother spend the entire time, did did they, uh, did the other kids like leave voodoo dolls on his pillow or whatever? I mean, or was everybody like, oh, fine, I guess this one anti-papist teacher vouches for him. Our whole suspicion of Mormonism is, is out the window? He converted them all. Is it that easy? He converted every single student there. Who, your brother? Yes. Went in and just poisoned all the Kool-Aid, didn't he? They're all dead now. No, he didn't convert them. Like he didn't do. It wasn't like a, a post mortem. It wasn't like Mormon baptisms for the dead. He converted all, them all to Mormons. Hey, that's clever it, argument. Does would that work for missionaries? If somebody won't convert, just murder them. Well, because of because of the doctrine of of uh, of conversion after death, you could just kill people and then convert them and be be doing good missionary work. The problem is it doesn't really help the local congregation much oh. if you just keep adding dead people to the records. Right. It's they're, not. It's not like the. It's not like the. It's not like a Chicago Democratic voting machine. They're not. They're not sending money up the stream because oh. they're dead. Well, I guess you could if you could if you could somehow arrange for their will to. Uh, oh right, you'd have to be doctoring documents at that point. You'd have to. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to to murder. A, it's a lot of work. It's now. one thing to murder a, a potential convert. As someone who's robbed the Louvre more than once. I need to I need to just 
uh, stipulate that it's very hard to alter someone's will without collusion on the part of their attorney. Or a notary public. Entry 583.IS3323. Certificate number 50975. The Hero of Camperdown. This is not about the Hero of Camperdown at all. Oh, but, but, well, you, but Why am I even on this show? I hate that guy. He thinks he's so great with his Camperdonian heroics. Hero of Camperdown. I'll climb up the mast and unfurl derp, the flag. Derp, derp. No one knows. No one cares. Somehow we got on the subject of uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, the Elton John song. Where the dogs of society howl. Yes. Yeah. And going back to the horny old owl in the woods. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> because if there's a if there's a horny owl in the woods, it's gonna need it's gonna need some attention. Sure. Uh, we I got a lot of support for my belief that it is about a uh, a young man being kept by a rich society dame who toys with him sexually. Okay. Uh, but I got com- I got complaints about I I had said that uh, I didn't like the toad rhyme. It's a cheap rhyme for Yellow Brick Road. Right. Horny old toad. Hunting the, back to the howling old owl in the woods. The yeah. owl's not horny. Howling I mean, owl it might in the be. Woods. We don't know why he's back howling. Back to the horny back toad. Uh, back to the howling owl. was hunting the horny back toad. Hunting the horny And I complained toad. that really nobody hunts toads. Oh, I bet you got, a, you got the toad hunting lobby on your heels now. Uh, I think I was corrected by Lon on a much more sensible basis, which is that it is not the singer of the song or his townspeople who are hunting the horny back toad. It's the owl. It modifies owl, yes. Back to the howling old owl in the woods, comma, who is hunting the horny back toad. But if so, what a weird way to say I'm going back to the country. Yes, sir, I've got to go back to my town, which is near a forest with owls that are howling because they're hunting toads. I guess that's just how he thinks about his his uh, his rural home. But you know, both of these guys are from London, right? <laughs> yes, they I mean, are. What are they even talking about? This 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 is even worse than a Canadian writing um, a song about the about the dying days of the Confederacy. I mean, this is the day. This is the um, these are the days of uh, of Elton John's you know peak fascination with the American West. Right, you know, honky cat, and uh, what's the what's the name of the rec- tumbleweed connection? All his all his records are set in some kind of Western frontier fantasia. So I think his idea of what the American backwoods are like is heavy on owls and toads. Owls and toads, but I, I, which I would not have thought of as as our big signifiers. Owls and toads. Oh my! What would you What would you say are the animals he should have chosen if he wanted to convey kind of a, a vaguely backwoods atmosphere i mean any kind of rodent i think of owls as at least here in the northwest primarily rodent eaters i looked this up owls will attack amphibians yeah 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 it makes sense that that there are owls that fish meets meat but a toad i mean i guess the thing about a toad is a toad what is is the thing about a toad john i've been wondering one thing about a toad is that a toad is announcing its presence right a rat spends most of its time trying to stay out of sight of an owl, for instance. Whereas a toad is, by definition, down in a mud going, rip, rip. I guess it's really a sign that they can't be menaced by that many. I'm not saying a toad is an apex predator. Right. But they can't have that dangerous a life if they just talk all day. I mean, if you were an owl, you wouldn't take long before you'd pick out which beady-eyed toad was, was the most accessible. And uh, and nab it. Whichever one is the horniest. 
I'll get the horniest toad. But still, there are a lot of Elton John lyrics. You know, Bernie Taupin, God bless him. But I think it's credit to Elton John's talent as a, as a melodicist that he managed to cram some of those lyrics into songs that we all sing. Like, we, we all know every note, but if you read the lyrics on the page, it's really like some of that stuff. I can't believe it made it. Well, but Bernie just wrote it down, handed it to Elton, and Elton turned it into a great song. I agree 100%. But uh, there must be, like, his work without Toppin is lesser. So there must be some kind of alchemy that happens in Elton's mind yeah. when he gets a new a packet full of lyrics, even if they are impossibly weird and the rhymes are forced. Really, really, really strange. I mean, if you read Mick Jagger's lyrics on the page, you are embarrassed for him. But nothing like Bernie Taupin lyrics. They're dumb, but they're not kind of what they're, overwrought the way they're not over. They're they're not stressed. Yeah. They're dumb and often like um, well, certainly sexist and also like we like super weird. Some of them super weird, like creepy. Um, but they're not. But he doesn't like he doesn't torture a rhyme the way Bernie Taupin does. I really, guess it, like walks all the way around the village square to get there. I guess it's. It's probably not unlike comedy where you'll give it a lot more credit if the comic or writer appears to not be trying hard, right? Right. Right. You, you, you'll laugh at a, at a casual thing that's mildly amusing, but a long tortured thing that's mildly amusing. Somebody posted on the Facebook group a, a like a 10-panel Star Trek The Next Generation supporting character meme that ended with a bad Monty Python pun. And I thought, you know, it's bad enough when I make a pun on the show off the top of my head, but... Can you imagine I'd, somebody, no, I'd, say, I'd say that's right. It is bad enough. Bad. It's it bad. Is, we all agree it's bad. Yeah. But can you imagine if I had then just spent an hour making a 10-panel meme of it? <laughs> Thank goodness that you have people to do that work for you. Entry 887.LV2525. Certificate number 2504. Jesse Owens, Gold Medals of... We were uh, discussing, you know, the the physical process of, you know, getting a medal, like getting a Nobel Prize. And uh, we received from Mike. A Nobel Prize laureate. We did not hear from a Nobel laureate, disappointingly, or an Olympic gold medalist. That's double too bad. We did hear from Mike asking, I guess because of Bob Dylan's recent... Oh, Nobel. And controversial Nobel in Literature Prize, which again, speaking of speaking of kind of whether rock lyric can be art, like should Dylan really be up against actual novelists and and poets? In terms of his influence on like Swedes, I think <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's what the Nobel Prize really is. It's a it's a who will influence the most Swedes contest. Yeah, like which Swedish boomers hold you closest to their heart. Um but yeah, Dylan's lyrics are often just um, like a word salad. He asked if uh, Michael asked Michael from Spokane asked, "Is Bob Dylan the Nobel laureate who needed the cash the least?" Huh? Because it's true. Like that is one aspect of giving him instead of some uh, Turkish poet or um, Nigerian novelist the award is he does not need the recognition or the money or the money. Who is the richest Nobel laureate prior to being awarded the prize? I looked it up. 
<laughs> of course you did. There's a surprising small number of scientists. Of the scientists who have won Nobel Prizes, you know, few of them chose to get rich off their work. That's very unusual. Right. Uh, I can't remember what year Al Gore won the Peace Prize, but his net worth is now something on the order of $200, $300 million. How did Al Gore uh, make that much money without... Uh, being clearly guilty of corruption. Oh no, he's corrupt. Uh-huh. No, I'm just kidding. It's his line of uh, it's his line of barbecue sauces. <laughs> Do you not use the Al Gore warm uh, melting ice caps hot sauce? Is is he is this just speaking <laughs> fees? He can't possibly have made that much money just twenty five thousand dollars at a time. Where does Al Gore get his money? Uh, a lot of it is investments. I guess at the time of his presidential run he had a net worth of just a million or two dollars mostly rents pasture rents from his family farm and royalty royalties from a zinc mine i guess the gore family sure owned a zinc the, mine. Zinc, the zinc fortune but uh he he started that current tv network which when al jazeera bought for 500 million dollars Suddenly, that was a nine-figure windfall for him. Whoa, collaborationist. So at least his money is from, from uh, Qatar, Qatari, Qatari? Qatari. Qatari's uh, Qatari. uh, oil sheiks. Uh, he also owned a ton of Apple stock. He'd been on the board. Since, he'd been on the board. So if you could arrange to be on the Apple board in 2003, uh-huh. before the iPhone, uh, it turns out, 59,000 shares of Apple stock are now... Oh, that he bought for $7.50 a share. <laughs> right. I see. So he is now, I think, the wealthiest, the guy who needs his Nobel Prize the least. Uh, we also, somebody sent us an account. I wonder if I can find this. Oh, this is, uh, oh, this is a different, sorry, this is not Michael from Spokane. This is Mike, who sent us a story from Scientific American about what it's like when you try to get your Nobel Prize... Through airport security. Huh, okay. Uh, in 2014, uh, astrophysicist, oh, sorry, astrophysicist Brian Schmidt, when he won the 2011 Nobel Prize for co discovering dark energy, he tried to take the medal, which is about the it's big, it's about the size of an Olympic medal, it's a big disc, it's a half a pound of gold, and he wanted to show his grandma in Fargo, North Dakota. And the problem is when you try to take that through TSA, the agents can see a giant gold disc. And gold, you know, being so heavy, just absorbs all the x-rays. They had never seen anything so black uh-huh. in a carry-on. None more black. At, none more black mm-hmm. as this circle, which I'm sure looks like it should be some kind of uranium device. Right. What's in the box? A large gold medal. What's it made out of? Uh, gold. Gold. Who gave it to you? He says, the king of Sweden. <laughs> <laughs> Who said this? The, Brian Schmidt, astrophysicist Brian Schmidt. And, and so the next question is, why did, you know, because it's one of these, who told you to carry this on a plane things. Right. Well, why did he give it to you? Well, I helped discover the expansion rate of the universe was accelerating. <laughs> so they discover this guy is a Nobel Prize winner. And then their questions become totally different. Then the questions are like, wait, why are you going to Fargo, North Dakota? <laughs> With your prize. Yes. Uh, you got to show grandma. Like, if I won a Nobel Prize, wouldn't you take it everywhere? Would I take it? You know, they, it's got to come with a lapel pin, right? That says, like, I want a Nobel Prize. So you don't actually have to hold the prize. And it has your pronouns on it. I have a prize. But you could, uh, I mean, all those people, I think if I had a 
Tony Award, I would take it everywhere. A Tony Award's more like a, I mean, it's a, it's a distinguishable shape. Yeah. So the guy will look at your thing and be like, "Hey, this guy won a Tony." You know, you know my uh, my reverse Grammy Award, right? My uh, my Dark Matter Grammy Award. Yes, I can't remember the story though. Uh, you've mentioned you told this before on the on the omnibus, have I? I think. Or is this just one some maybe anecdote having, that I told you? Maybe I'm having pre deja vu. Uh, yeah, when Amy Mann won an award, won a Grammy Award for her album Mental Illness. I wrote uh, one of the songs on the record, or co-wrote it with Amy, the final, the final song on the album, the album closer. Right. And so when she won the Grammy, uh, the Grammy came, was delivered to her home, packaged in foam, black, black packaging material, and taking the Grammy out, the foam is perfect Grammy shaped. I, I don't, maybe you didn't tell me this. This is great. And so Amy sent me the foam saying, you know, I only got one Grammy award. You don't get a Grammy award for writing one, one song, but here you can have the foam from my Grammy. So I display it prominently. You could use it to cast new Grammy awards. You could, although you, it wouldn't have all the detail, <laughs> but, um, but it, you know, like in silhouette, it looks perfectly like a, like basically a Harrison Ford in Carbonite um, of a Grammy. Of a Grammy. You know what I just realized is I got one of those for my Jeopardy trophy. It arrived in a briefcase with with uh, form fitting foam. And it's Jeopardy shape, Jeopardy trophy. I shaped. think. Would you like to have a reverse Jeopardy trophy to go with your reverse Grammy? Yeah. Everybody, please send John. <laughs> if anybody won a Nobel Prize or an Olympic medal and it came in a it, or a it came Tony in foam, or a or an Emmy, please send your foam to John. He promises not to melt down all his ingots and cast. And cast new awards that lower the value of yours. Send me your foam. The other note we heard about this entry, this was really interesting. Jeremiah, I guess we you read a quote of Jesse Owens uh, to the effect that he liked, uh, he enjoyed the horse races and stuff he did later in his career. Right. That he's he was in favor of them. And Jeremiah wrote in very skeptical of that. Like, of course, that's the thing you would have to say. Sure. Or the event organizers are going to get mad, especially if you're a black guy in 1950, right? Sure. And I looked, I looked it up, I looked more into it, and it turned out that later in his life, Jeremiah is correct. Like that, uh, although at the time, Jesse talked about how much he loved his new career, that he he really found them degrading and he talked about oh, disliking them. Oh, I can only them. imagine, yeah. Uh, and what's interesting is when you read the stuff, like what's most offensive to us is the spectacle of a mostly white crowd watching an African-American athlete race against an animal. The world's most famous yes. African-American and athlete. And yet, uh, you know, the parody... Race against a horse. The parody here is we compare him to a horse. Yeah. And I'm sure the organizers were not intending to say to dehumanize black people, but they, it didn't trouble them, certainly, that they were. Right? right, they were not overly troubled by the comparison, and you know he did race against trains and motorcycles and stuff. And interestingly, when you read his quotes after the fact, he doesn't mention that the animal comparison is degrading. He just thinks he shouldn't have had to do that. Sure, uh, well, he shouldn't, right? Yeah, yeah. He, he's like, already proved that he's fast by winning gold medals in the Olympics. I'm an Olympic champ, and the fact that I'm doing these novelty races now against motorcycles and quarter horses, it, that you know, to him, that was the. That was the humiliating part that, yeah, he, that he had had to stoop to that, and I guess that does make sense. So, Absolutely, it does. I saw Mr. T. I think I said this on Omnibus. I watched Mr. T once on Spanish TV. They had apparently flown him over to great uh, at, at great cost to have him be the special guest of this kind of Spanish double dare, like their special Christmas or New Year's edition. 
and you know, because they had thought of Mr. T as a as a big strapping athletic guy. Unfortunately, Mr. T he's like five foot seven in right? the mid nineties. You know, yeah, he he's still he he's he just put on all the weight in different places. Right, and and now they want him to do all these tests of skill and physical challenges, and his reflexes were clearly not what they had been when he was LA's best bodyguard. He kept getting hit in the face with a frisbee. It was it was a thing where he had to snatch something away and he kept he kept grabbing for it after it had already moved. Right. And uh, and I really felt like I was watching it was it was just like watching Jesse. I'm not comparing Mr. T to Jesse Owens, although they should both be on postage stamps. Right. Um well, yeah, at different denominations. <laughs> yes. Mr. T should be on the the 1 cent stamp. Uh, let me ask you, as a celebrity, what is the... Are you saying let me ask you as a celebrity? Let me Comma. ask you as a celebrity. Let me ask you, fellow celebrity, um, what is the thing that you agreed to do where once you arrived there, you found it was the most humiliating thing? There's definitely one that stands out. There was this um, pr- perfectly nice guy, Toronto music producer, who uh, who had... had had done a line of like audio trivia CDs in the eighties and they had not been a hit. And he thought, well, I, you know, I just need to bring these back. And with a, a name brand like Ken's and I was at the time, not confident enough to say this idea sounds bad. Mm-hmm. People don't want to listen to trivia on CDs because you'll listen to it once and then you'll know all the answers. This right. is the wrong medium for that. And he was like, no, no, no. They'll just buy new ones. They like listening to them again. Cause now they know the answers. Mm. 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 Uh, but I agreed to do it and uh, he wanted me to do, uh, I can't, we were at some kind of either at the Canadian or the American home shopping network. I can't remember which one we were on, but I had to go sit in front of, uh, you know, QVC type cameras and tell the interviewer how great these CDs were and hope that the thing would like ka-ching, ka-ching upwards. <laughs> and then the sales were not that great. So, you know, I immediately got pushed off air and I remember thinking, I don't have to do this. Yeah. I mean, I'd rather play trivia against a motorcycle or a, or a quarter horse yeah, than have to go have on to the, have to go on the home shopping network to promote some, some Canadian audio trivia product that I don't even think is uh, that great an idea. Yeah. It seems, it seems like a, it's, it's just a side effect of a certain kind of fame and a certain kind of like inability to say no. That was part of it. Either like, financially or just you haven't developed enough pride. It was yet. temperament, yeah. And it, and it really was like the, having not developed the skepticism just to be like, hey, this guy has hey. worked in the, in the audio industry for years. Uh, what, a, what a chance to... Yeah, to to tie my what an uh, opportunity <laughs> to tie my trivia streamers to his wagon, and I've since learned it's okay. Like yeah. if you're busy with your own stuff, you do not have to say yes just because somebody else is super passionate right. about their stuff. Entry one zero seven seven dot je zero one one three, certificate number two three six zero seven. Rolled Amundsen's airship. This was a good story, right? It was a good story. Amundsen and his and his he's squabbling with his Italian yeah. uh, crew as they sail to the North Pole. All their all, all their different madcap adventures. They did have crazy adventures, uh, and it's such a good story that I, I did not somehow I did not know this until Ned pointed it out that this was actually the basis for a big budget international co-production in 1969. There was a big movie based on the story of Amundsen's journey to the North Pole. Uh, 
and it stars the heroes of our show. Um, well, it's, it, it, most of the movie is set in the sequel where uh, Amundsen was sent to rescue Nobile, his his right. Italian rival. Uh, this thing is such a big budget that Sean Connery plays Roald Amundsen. What? And Peter Finch, uh, uh, I want you to get up and go to your window and say I'm mad as hell and, uh, yeah. and I'm not going to take it anymore, plays Umberto Nobile. They're the big international stars. This is actually an Italian-Soviet co-production. <laughs> Directed, well, so I've, I should have seen it on the Criterion Collection. Directed by Mikhail Kalatozov, who did direct a Criterion Collection movie. I believe The Cranes Are Flying is in the Criterion uh, Collection. And if you loved, I got, I know you guys loved Come and See when you did it on Friendly Fire. Oh boy. If you want to do another Russian war movie, Cranes Are Flying is, is a very good anti-war film. It's on our list. Is that right? Yeah. Well, when you do it, maybe you should be tempted to, uh, to watch The Red Tent, the... Uh, his subsequent $10 million international co-production starring Sean Connery, Peter Finch, and, and Claudia Cardinale from um, whatever she's in, uh, uh, the Pink Panther movies, and uh, I think Rocco and his brothers, who plays... How could, there, how could you possibly put a love interest into that movie? Uh, uh, a, like, a, like, a, like a warm polar bear? She plays a nurse. Oh, I guess, nurse. I guess they, they created and expanded the role of a fictional nurse. Sure. Oh, maybe she's real. She plays the lover of Swedish meteorologist Finn Mulgrim. I don't know. But anyway, there's a big movie about it's got an Ennio Morricone score. Huh. Sean Connery played Roald Amundsen. It's, it, the script was polished by Robert Bolt, the man from All Seasons playwright who wrote all those David Lean scripts like Lawrence of Arabia. What What does IMDb say? Uh, how, how many Rotten Tomatoes does, does this film get? Because IMDb has a 0 to 10... Uh, system and this has movie has a seven out of ten ratio. What? That's pretty high. It's out of print. It was available on DVD, but it's now out of print. So oh. it combines. So it uh, demands. What's the word? It commands. It commands a premium. Uh, high prices on eBay, but uh, I'm, I'm going to send an email to Criterion. It looks like one of these Marlon Brando things where Connery only worked for three weeks. Oh right. Got top billing, and then poor Peter Finch had to. Had to do all the acting. Had to do nine months of, of acting in the Estonia or the Baltic or wherever, whatever is <laughs> standing, Arctic. whatever standing in for the Arctic. Yeah, but uh, there you go. That's it's probably the first omnibus topic that has its own Soviet movie. Right. There's well, no, there's no Soviet movie about Sophie Smith. Let me think. As far Are as there I any know. other topics that have a Soviet movie, the Noid. I'm, sh- I'm sure our listeners will let us know. Be. There's got to be. And that will be the first addenda of an addenda when, okay. when you let us know. Looking forward. Entry 1351.MT1828. Certificate number 48968. TV detection vans. We heard from a lot of international omnibus listeners about this one. Well, you know, I assumed we would. This is an example of a thing where we are talking about a topic from um, the standpoint of a, a complete Be- bewil- American... Bewildered Americans. Be- be- yeah, be- bewildered obliviousness. Even though this is how TV works in almost every other developed nation. And we're we're addressing a, a pretty wide audience, a global audience of people who are like, uh, who have been living with this their whole life. So I'm sure we got a lot of, of letters... Um, 
and I only and I, I just can't wait to hear all the ways that I got it wrong. So lay them on me. Well, I mean, the main thing, like we kind of thought, we imagined it was silly that you would raise money for a national for public TV this way instead of just you know, instituting a tax, for example. Uh, you know, it's it's because it's essentially a tax. If government people come to your house and say, "Give the government money because you have a TV," right? But this is not a tax. And uh, the point our European listeners made is that it, it's it's done to keep at least the veneer of uh, editorial independence. Oh, oh, sure. That this sure. is not a this is not an arm of the government. That TV actually generates its own income that's yet it's not commercial yes and it's independent of any political aims of the government i mean i I think in practice that's not always true i think the bbc is always accused of being in the pocket of whoever is in power i mean that happened during the last election you know that they're the they're the ultimate agent of conformity labor complained that you know if if corbyn hadn't been painted as an anti-semite by on the british airwaves so uh convincingly that you know labor wouldn't have had that defeat but um, but we got a very lengthy explanation from Peter Ostmann about how German and then previous to that West German uh, government broadcasting worked, and you know right right down to the uh, you know how the charters of the individual broadcasters work and how there's a CEO called the Intendant who's elected by 60 members of the Broadcasting Board, and the Broadcasting Board is elected partially from the state parliament, with delegates also from local churches, from trade unions. It's exactly how you would imagine right. a European bureaucracy uh, to sound. Sounds extremely efficient. And he mentions two occasions where the German government did try to meddle. Uh, both conservative chancellors, Adenauer and Kohl, I guess, both tried to interfere with editorial content, and it... Uh, blew up in his face and the courts held that the thing should be independent. We heard from many listeners that we should have, uh, that we did not mention the Monty Python cat detector van sketch. Right, right. Which obviously is a take on the TV detection vans and didn't even occur to me at the time. Uh, I think I've seen that sketch without realizing that that was about the broadcast license. I think that happened to me too. I knew the sketch, but I had no... I, I didn't make the connection. Right, because it's one of those sketches that's almost funnier if you think there is no referent. Yeah, right. You know, like, that's just an absurd thing that guys would drive around in vans looking for cats. That might be funnier than a satirical take on on whatever the BBC was doing in 1969. Well, and also, as an American kid watching Monty Python in the late 70s and 80s, um, there, was, there, were, there were so many references. I mean, there are... References to the Macmillan administration that I had no idea what they were talking about. You know, like loving Monty Python as a as a, a as a kid in America, you had to assume forty percent of the references were going to go right by you. I, what's a cheese shop? I never saw a cheese shop in my life. It turns out the Monty Python those Flying Circus episodes are full of very topical satire. You know how half the show is like um, like a fake panel show, different parodies of different kinds of shows. Yeah. And I guess if you had been in Britain in 1970, you would have known exactly which hosts they were ripped from they, the headlines. They were parody- like even and now for something completely different is a is a takeoff on something a specific BBC uh, announcer used to say in little interstitials. Yeah. So. All those things were very topical references that we, and that we now that become silly. like universal. I watched Holy Grail last night. Oh, really? With your kids? Yeah, and with, I, Mar- with my kids, but all both my daughter and, uh, and your uh, both my daughter and my and, and your six twenty year old girlfriend, my other daughter and my six twenty year old girlfriends. Uh, and I was n- nervous about it, both because I was worried about adult themes, but also 
um, just worried that the that the humor would be completely over her head. Mm-hmm. You know, in the way that that some of the TV shows were over my head. Maybe some of them still are. Uh, but no, Holy Grail is a great movie, completely appropriate for a ten-year-old, and wonderful, just wonderful. Luke from Bristol uh, enjoyed the TV licensing entry and wanted to uh, point out that you know we kind of made it out as kind of a menacing totalitarian thing that the government's trying to find out if you have a TV. What he pointed out is that the enforcement is extremely toothless, right? In practice. Uh, like really the only way to get caught is you have to let someone into your home and let them see you watching TV or admitting to them you watch TV, except for that, like the courts have felt there's really nothing that the government can do. And the enforcement officials are private employees of an outsourced firm, which means they don't have a warrant. Like you can't get in trouble for not telling them you, for lying about watching TV. Uh, so as a result, um, you know, they kind of act official. And as a result, they get a lot of the elderly, you know, immigrant populations and so forth. Right. They spook people. To let them in and get bullied into paying their their uh, licensing fee. Um, I mean, and even if you if you just have a TV that you only use for streaming, you can say, you, I, I only use this for Netflix. I don't have to pay. But for a lot of these people, if a man comes into their home and says, oh, I, you know, you've got, a, you've got a television. That's, that's, that's 79 quid. <laughs> then isn't he an old person? Then they would pet. He points out that there's a real culture in of, in UK student life of trying to convince others not to let license officers into the dorms because they really target dorms, of course. Um, and all you need is one, you know, person from the country who doesn't know what's going on, or some international student, sure to let the guy put his foot in the door, and then he can roam roam around the whole complex. Oh, you have for to hours. you have to invite a vampire in. Yes, the the licensing officials are like vampires. And he sent us a link to a BBC uh, story about a man who has refused to pay his TV license since 2006, and he gets a letter from the BBC once a month, and he posts them to the internet. The hundreds of letters he gets... Are they all the same letter, or does each one escalate? They're just... They they escalate, and they sound like um, kind of American repo threats. Uh You know, it's the kind of things that we hear with debt collection... um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where, where they claim to have more authority than they do, or you know, like when someone dies with debts unpaid, they try to get a hold of the heirs and kind of finesse the fact that they don't have any legal obligation to assume the debts. Right. Um, I guess that's exactly what happens, but it's the BBC doing it. Like, will you be in on March twenty first? Because our officers will be um, <laughs> just trying to pressure vulnerable people into paying. So uh, now you actually know what Europeans know about television licensing, and not just what. Uh, dull-eyed Americans know. Yeah, there was I, uh, there was some conversation about it on uh, on the web at some point that I read um, sort of an impassioned explanation of how it was a regressive tax or maybe not a regressive tax, whatever it was. People seem very proud of the fact that they have these independent national public broadcasters. Yeah, yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of pride and. Um, you know, whenever I read something on the internet where someone is expressing a lot of national pride, boy, do I tune in. Um, so I learned a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for all the replies. Entry 1008.IS4713. Certificate number 52246. Pulsar's Discovery of. Uh... 
Ken Jennings, comma, correction of. This is interesting. We, we've now had corrections on the two uh, entries that we've ever done that have that formulation, the thing, comma, thing of. It's a curse. Yeah. We, we shouldn't do it again. Let's never do it again. We're jinxed. We wondered about it, but here we are. I mean, because every episode is full of errors, but with the comma ones, people appear to correct them. Yeah. And we don't want that. No. It's the last thing I want. Although we kind of do because this is an addenda episode. It's, yeah. it's the whole premise it, of it. It makes these fun. Yeah. But you don't want to encourage the actual ears. You're going to get plenty of them. Yeah, right, right, right. They don't need encouragement. Uh, we heard from, you know, not being scientists ourselves, I was very happy to hear from uh, James Little, uh, who is uh, a real astronomy expert. I, we talked about, I talked about how pulsars were the way the first exoplanets, uh, planetary systems outside the solar system, were discovered. Right. Um, at, you know, as if it were like just jets from their magnetic field that let us detect planets. And he said that is actually not true. The first time we ever saw exoplanets, they were actually spinning around a pulsar and, you know, blocking blocking the light from the pulsar, Oh, which is how we first saw it. And it seems unusual that a pulsar could have a planet. But right. I guess it used to be a regular star that went supernova because it, before it got all small and dense. And then small. Before it got small, it used uh-huh. to be thick with two Cs. Uh-huh. It was a long boy. It was a heck, a heck, <laughs> yeah. a heck and was, good supernova. It was a big boy, yeah. And Chonk. Uh, it was chonk. <laughs> or it's chonk now. It's, it would chonk mean dense? Because it's smaller, but it's thick. It's, it's small. It's, it's, small it's substantial. Thick. Yeah, chonk. Uh, so the first exoplanets discovered, the first planets anywhere outside our solar system, were actually in orbit around pulsars, just leftover matter from the explosion that, uh, this from the supernova that produced huh. the pulsar, just leftover stuff from the debris field. I don't know what it would be like to be living around a pulsar. You'd, you'd mm. certainly have to be used to a very... Uh, what a small, a small but very brightly flashing sun. Yeah, I think you would just need to be a different kind of life form, and I'm sure, uh, if not now, then later we'll hear from one of those life forms. <laughs> They've evolved to enjoy the flickering of. They're they don't have. They're like the kind of. They would never have a, a seizure at a at the strobing of a of a Pikachu episode. No, in fact, they it, would enjoy it. It may be the thing that, that gives them life. It would be a regular Pokemon episode that doesn't have any uh, flickering that would make them seize up. The other note we got was from David, uh, who happened to be near his childhood hometown of Fayetteville, New York. And he sent us pictures. We mentioned something called the Matilda effect in the discovery of Pulsar's episode in which women, uh, often are overlooked for credit for important scientific achievements. Right. Instead, the credit being given to their male colleagues. It's a, it's a, a takeoff of what would have, had originally been called the Matthew effect, whereby less prominent scientists have the credit stolen from a different scientist. Any scientist named Matthew is almost certainly going to not be cited in the final paper. I can't think of a, Oh, I thought maybe Matthew would be the, would be the, the, the scientist, the prominent stole it. thieving Oh, no, it's a, uh, it comes from the, I think we said this on the show, it comes from the parable of the talents and the gospel of Matthew. I see. I see. But the Matilda effect, the the, the feminist uh, corollary, is named for a specific woman, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, in an 1870 essay called Woman, woman as Inventor, noted that uh, women's accomplishments are often downplayed or, or borrowed by their male colleagues. So today, when the effect was... Usurped. Uh, was, usurped. When the effect was mentioned in the 1990s in modern scholarship, it was called the Matilda effect in honor of this uh, abolitionist and uh, suffragette. Right. 
We're merely soldiers in petticoats from the 1890s. And she is buried in the town cemetery in Fayetteville, New York. Did someone send us a picture? Yes. Hooray. David went walking at twilight through the cemetery. Oh, wait, did he conjure her? <laughs> and her ghost appeared. <laughs> well, he actually went to the Gage Center. There, there must have been her home. Yeah, uh, where she lived from 1854 until her death, which now is a, some kind of museum, the Gage Center with a big... A plaque out front commending this nationally known abolition. Well, it says nationally known, oh, nationally known abolition and women's rights advocate. Okay. Mm-hmm. And her grave says, Matilda Jocelyn Gage, there is a word sweeter than mother, home, or heaven. Ooh. That word, do you want to guess? Uh, is credit. Gravy. No, liberty. Liberty. It's That's one of her famous quotes. Mm-hmm. And it's a really good epitaph, and it really sh- kind of shows. It's it's a funny, um, it's a funny reference to that kind of general nineteenth century agreement that mother, you know, of sentimentality about mothers. Yes. What could be sweeter than the word mother? Liberty. And she said, "No, there actually is a better word than mother, home, or heaven. That word is liberty." You tell them, Matilda. Entry nine two six dot is zero three two four. Certificate number 22584. Le Now, this episode had a lot of farting. It did, and I, I, you know, I was shy about it in the first place, because I I tend to be uh, squeamish, a little easily grossed out. I don't like people talking about uh, dirty stuff, or uh, poop, or even any kind of gross stuff. I'll, it'll, it'll put me off my... My feed. We must have been talking about poop because Chrissy wrote in to say, uh, John needs to hear about how rabbits eat their poop. What could you have possibly said on a podcast that would make a total stranger want you to know that rabbits eat poop? Well, not just want me to know, but feel like I need to know about yeah. rabbits there's eating some, There's poop. some urgency. So rabbit What poop, situation would you have to be in where that, would, where that would make any kind of difference in your life? If I had decided that rather than podcast or in addition to podcasting, I was going to... Start raising rabbits for food, and this person was either trying to caution me or trying to encourage me. I still don't know which one it is, the story of rabbits eating their poop. But short of of declaring that I intended to be a rabbit rancher, um, I can't think of a reason I would want to know this or need to know it. Well, Chrissy has firsthand knowledge. She's a rabbit rancher. She had a pet rabbit and uh, who would often see... Uh, I mean, this is not what you're going to imagine. This is maybe even more visceral. He would actually lower his head between his legs and pop up again chewing. He would poop right into his own mouth. He's a he, one. He's a one rabbit human centipede. Well, you have to. You have to know. You have to feel like rabbits are not um, ungulates, right? They don't have multiple stomachs. They don't. And so, as they're chewing delicious sweet grass, they must be conscious of the fact that they have not squeezed all the nutrients out of it. They've not. They've not taken full advantage, and there's more goodness to yet to come. Uh, rabbits are cecotropes. The hares, rabbits, and the pikas are cecotropes. Uh, oh no, no, sorry. Uh, they, sorry, they 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 produce a kind of pellet called a cecotrope. Oh, I see. Sorry, which passes through the intestine and then is reingested for added nutrients. So because they don't have the multiple stomachs, they get the same effect by digesting something once. Halfway. Halfway, eating it again, because there's some kind of, uh, they have, um, 
bacterial fermentation in their gut that's breaking stuff down for them. So then they can eat it again 48 hours after they've eaten it the first time and get new nutrients from it thanks to the additional fermentation that took place in the in the gut. Can a rabbit tell a good poop from a bad poop? Because surely after they've eaten it a second time, those second poops are a different kind of poop. I, I assume they can. Because are rabbit rabbits poops have like Pokemon? Ra- rabbits <laughs> where because <laughs> you got to catch them all. Well, that and also because they, you know, it's like this isn't its final form. Uh, I see. This it can poop, evolve. Yeah, this poop is it, yes. it's now going to be a higher poop. You have the cecotropes or night feces, which then, uh, what do Pokemon do? They mutate. They evolve. Evolve. They evolve into their highest form, which is actual poop. Right. Real poop. An inedible poop. Chrissy also helpfully uh, told us. Because we were, I was, I, we, I was having a hard time remembering which one was Watson and which one was Crick. Yeah. And she said it's easy to remember which one is Watson because she works at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. Why is that easy? And I, it's, I, and I, it's I, easy. <laughs> and it's the easiest. Maybe she says. Maybe she asserts. Maybe the easiest way to remember Watson is American is because his laboratory is on Long Island. So if you already know where Watson and Crick's respective laboratories are, it's incredibly easy to remember. It's which much is easier now. that It's like, which one, Watson or Crick? Oh, well, Watson's got the laboratory on Long Island. Therefore, he must be the American. It's a good mnemonic for a very small number of people. <laughs> on that same subject, we also heard uh, from John Roberts, presumably no relation, mm-hmm. who says, um, all, we need, all we need to do to not be confused about which one's Watson and which one's Crick is to watch the 1987 TV movie Life Story in which Jeff Goldblum plays James Watson. Right, and Jeff Go- Goldblum is an American. Therefore. Therefore. It seems like there's an easier way, right. which is just to remember that Watson's the American. People don't understand what a mnemonic is. They're suggesting mechanisms like, that are much more obstru- esoteric and complicated yeah. than... Here's all you have to do. All you have to do is remember... If you can't remember which one is a stalactite or a stalagmite, <laughs> here's what you have to do. Put suction cups on your feet, walk right. into a cave upside down... Which one is pointing up? That's actually a stalactite pointing down. <laughs> All you have to do is get a degree in geology. It is kind of interesting that Goldblum played Watson, though. But Goldblum could have could have done it in a with a with a British accent, for all we know. I, I think the easiest way to remember it is. Do you think he can do accents? I'm not convinced uh, that he doubt, can do accents. No, I doubt he can. I think the easiest way to remember is Watson is Sherlock Holmes's assistant. No, but that's British. Exactly. So it's the opposite of what you think. It's kind of like... And Americans sometimes say crick to mean a small body of water. There it is. So it's the opposite of what of what, what it would seem to be if you went based on what your first thought is when you think of the name. Do you think playing Dr. Watson, J- James Watson, that is, in this British TV movie really helped Jeff Goldblum become a plausible scientist for Jurassic Park? Do do you know I had the experience the other day of watching uh, Independence Day for my uh, hit podcast, Friendly Fire, and realized for the first time how it is that Jeff Jeff Goldblum is considered a sex symbol? Because I always thought of him as perhaps the least sexy person. Really? But I saw him in this movie, and he's got his shirt unbuttoned, and he's kind of like— you know, swarthy and See, oiled up and uh, and lanky, and I was like, "Oh, I get it." Yeah, in a certain light, he's kind of cute. And I turned to uh, my TV watching companion and said, "Oh, yeah, he's kind of a sex symbol." And she said, "Are you kidding? Like, he's so sexy." It's like, "Oh, yuck, weird." <laughs> okay, 
So I, I put it out there to futurelings. Uh, maybe somebody throw up a poll. La- Jeff Goldblum, sexy or no? Ladies love cool Jeff. Jeff Goldblum, plausible scientist or no? Are those the three categories? Yeah. Are you? Is he sexy, plausible DNA scientist, both or neither? Right. Okay, there we go. Run the poll. Entry 473.LK1413. Certificate number 30708. The 504 sit-in. This was the famous disability rights protest in uh, San Francisco or Oakland. I can't remember. San Francisco. Some federal building in San Francisco in the Carter era. Uh, it was very gratifying. We heard from actually people in the field of disability law who enjoyed the episode. Which, yeah, which uh, is that was nice. Those were nice letters to read. Uh, Andrew teaches... Uh, something adjacent to disability rights at Western Washington university. And he said he would add the show to his syllabus. Hey, so you could be, you could be listening to this addendum right now because to get extra credit in your, in your disability law class. Yeah. Quit cutseling up to your professor. Cutseling is my advice. Is that a word? Cutsel? I've never cutseled in my life. I don't know. Do you like Kipling? <laughs> I don't know. I've never cutseled. There you go. We also heard from, uh, Kevin, who is a disability rights advocate and is working on uh, passing better legislation regulating the cost of insulin. As you may have heard, life-saving medications like insulin and EpiPens have just skyrocketed in price in recent years because manufacturers have a monopoly. And he lives in Washington state as well. And I guess Washington has weaker laws than some other states to keep companies from gouging on life-saving medications right. or, you know, I guess capping copays at least. Uh, and he said uh, he had the idea that maybe a 504 style sit-in against insulin manufacturers might be helpful. Oh, nice. I hope I'm not giving this away. I hope by saying this, I haven't scotched his uh, protest. No, no, no. If I you're think- an insulin manufacturer, don't listen to this. If you're anybody else, <laughs> go to this cool protest and end the profiteering. Yeah, if you're an insulin uh, manufacturer, shame. We, shame. I, I bet they feel lousy right now. <laughs> Lord, we must have mentioned the city of uh, a Mississippi city that starts with B in this episode. Laura wrote us to take issue with the pronunciation. How do you pronounce the six-letter Mississippi city that starts with the letter B? Bluxy. You say Bluxy. Yes. Bluxy. I think I said Biloxi. I bet you did. And she was. She points out that even though that's extremely common, and in fact, dictionaries list both, it's a perfect shibboleth of people who are actually from there. Right. Because locals say Biloxi with like a schwa, whereas outsiders will say Biloxi like it's like uh, bagels and locks. Biloxi blues. Yeah, I think I always say Biloxi blues. Do they say Biloxi in the movie? I, I don't know, but they're, none of them are from Bluxy, Mississippi. Right. They're all out of towners at an army. Right post, right? Right. Uh, so we apologize to the fine residents of Biloxi and we apologize to non-residents of Biloxi for, uh, I don't, I'm not sure I apologize. I'm pretty sure I said it right. Or at least I know how to say well, it. Well, I don't even know how it would have come up. Yeah. I don't know. What, what does it have to do with a, with the San Francisco? I mean, city? it may be a thing that you said and I didn't say like, um, Ken, that's what people want. Yeah. People want us to correct each uh, other. Er. That's actually my fetish is us correcting each other. Yeah. Entry 1300.TI0209. Certificate number 49600. 
Tomas the tank engine. Gracias, Tomas. Oh boy, we're we got an uh, soy, un got lo- an... soy un locomotivo muy útil. <laughs> I love it when you speak Spanish. I wish you would do it more. I feel like uh, Jamie Lee Curtis in a fish called Wanda. <laughs> Vladivostok. <laughs> uh, Matthew wrote in to uh, when we talked about Thomas the Tank Engine. He wrote in to reminisce about the time he worked at a mall chain called the Great T- Train Store, which I only vaguely remember selling train-themed things to, I assume, uh, saddled men and children. The Great Train Store. Do you remember the Great Train Store? No. He said the store would actually blow an actual train whistle a certain number of times an hour to the dismay of the Orange Julius oh, can you imagine? A- across the way. <laughs> Like the ultimate bad neighbor. And I guess this was the upscale this was the upscale Cincinnati Mall. So everybody working at the at the Louis Vuitton store or whatever had to hear toot, toot, like every twenty minutes from the great train store oh boy. across the way. But it was tons of uh, soccer moms bringing in their preschoolers to enjoy the Thomas display. So he saw endless Thomas the Tank Engine on a loop. And he says as a result of that and I don't really follow the connection here, but he wrote a, a panel discussion, a short story he sent us from some kind of storytelling uh, group that he and some of his college friends were in, which is an imagined panel discussion between <sighs> pianist Glenn Gould, okay. the Reverend Audrey, who wrote the Thomas stories, historian yeah. Neil Howe, who you may remember from the his, his generations theory, you know, the turning do you remember this guy? American or world history is a set of is a series of sets of four generations. Oh, the, the no, I think this must have missed me. One of which is always apocryphal. Oh, no, some some popular bit of pop history, generational theory. So these three, and then one of their professors, uh, a computer professor, maybe. The, the, this is just like a. Like a mock tribunal? Yes, and he's just imagining what would happen if the inventor of the Thomas trains... Oh, and uh, and Douglas Hofstetter, the philosopher and, and artificial intelligence expert. Right. So, uh, and he sent me the... And Madonna. <laughs> no, that would actually be... Uh, I don't want to say interesting, but that would actually have some popular appeal. <laughs> uh, so if you ever do want to find out whether what would happen if Douglas Hofstetter and... The Thomas the Tank Engine creator argued about the intelligence of artificial intelligence of the trains. Yes, uh, I now have. You have the document. I now have a foundational document. Maybe you could read it and summarize it for me. Uh, maybe we could just read the whole thing now, and we could all do the various voices. Oh, okay, good. Would you be <laughs> Professor Gerald R. Doan of music education at the University of Cincinnati College Conservatory of Music? Is that one of your impressions? Yes, and. <laughs> Uh, the other note we got about Thomas, I really enjoyed this, and it's something I, I had thought of before but did not think to mention during the show. John wrote in to point out that the Thomas the Tank Engine world is even more nightmarish than we made it out to be. Oh, what? Really? Because Are we, they cannibals? We, yes, the trains eat each other. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, the trains like to touch the younger trains. It's oh, very dear. unseemly. Oh, no. No. Uh, you know, we pointed out that it's a, it's a terrible system in which the trains are virtual slaves. Right. They're, the only utility they provide is the, their labor, and they're not well compensated or even respected. Right. Uh, he pointed out that it's even worse than this. The trains world, the Thomas world, Sodor, the island of Sodor, is not like the world of cars where the trains are autonomous. Every train in the Thomas world has a driver. 
Oh, sitting inside it. Really? Is this a surprise to you? Oh, I've never seen Thomas the Tank Engine. So, well, the drivers are never foregrounded. You, do you never see them, or you do see them? You see them sitting in the cab, but they never come out of the train and discuss what their duties are in driving a sentient train. Is it possible that the drivers are some sort of uh, like parasite? Uh, either parasite or like um, maybe like, like those, those Jeffrey Dahmer, uh, <laughs> like like. Brain acid sex slave automaton? I think, I think it's more like they're the birds on the back of the rhinoceros oh. that uh, that eat off the bugs or something. Right, because Remora. their purpose is not clear. If the trains, in the, the, the moral of all these Sodor adventures is that the trains are credited when they are useful yeah. and, and roundly criticized when they cause confusion and delay. But what could a train do? Just because it has a face, like... If the train is the one in charge of being late or doing shoddy work, why yeah. is there a driver? Maybe it's like that bug that Khan put in Chekhov's ear uh, that that made him susceptible to interrogation. Well, in that case, you have two options. You, you don't criticize the train when he does something wrong. You either yell, at, the you yell at the driver, Fire the driver. or you uh, lure the driver out of his head and shoot it with a phaser Yeah, that's right. on the Genesis planet. Yes. Those, right. those are the, really... After you ignite the Gaia bomb. <laughs> right. That causes Spock to become alive again. Yes. The, the Genesis, uh, what, torpedo or something? Genesis torpedo, yeah. It's good to have a Genesis torpedo. That's, that, that's like a Beastie Boy is, lyric. Is that, what you call, <laughs> is that what you call Phil Collins' uh, little, uh, little, little friend? Little buster? Uh, his little driver. <laughs> so, yes, why are there little men in the Thomas cabins? Hard it, to say. It gets... It gets it gets more and more dystopian with every turn. Like it's it's almost as if the engineer gets the credit when when he drives the train correctly. Right. But the when train gets but the... when Thomas goes too slow or whatever, is it like a maybe a, the relationship between a horse and a and a rider? Well, no. What was that Disney movie recently or Pixar movie where the, the where the four little girls lived inside the head of the little girl? Uh, oh, Inside Out. Inside Out. What if, what if it's like that? What if the driver is just like the conscience of the train? And all, he, and all he can do is try to, like, whisper the train onward. Like, yeah, or just... Hey, you know, you're doing great. He's just in there, and sometimes he's mad, and sometimes he's sad, and... I mean, I mean John suggests that maybe the uh, the engineer just provides the... the uh, well, I don't know. I guess, I guess John believes the engineer has full control. Maybe the engineer is just shoveling coal. Who, who are we really, Ken? What is the uncaused cause? Am I four little voices in my head? Am I Mindy Kaling, Amy Poehler, uh, Phyllis from The Office, and whoever the fourth one is? That's what I'm asking. Like, am, am like, do I think, therefore I am? Or is it the little man in me that thinks? Does Mindy Kaling think, therefore I am? I think Mindy Kaling thinks. Lewis Black! It's Lewis Black. It took me a second. Entry 7492S114. I'm sure a lot of futurelings have these numbers already memorized. I mean, this one they probably do. Certificate 35752. Mail trucks. This is an episode from September of 2018. It was our 89th episode. The unofficial mascot of Omnibus is the mail truck, even though it's just some not very memorable entry. That's right. (laughs) Mail truck just... Just an entry in the omnibus, not Sli- one that we... Slightly below average entry. <laughs> we did not mean it to become the emblem of the show. We heard from many listeners this month about mail trucks because of a Vice 
Freedom of Information Act, uh, what do you call them? Application? Uh, Inquiry? Yeah, uh, Freedom of Information Act um, request, request, I guess, yeah. uh, that led Vice to write an article about an underreported issue whereby hundreds and hundreds of the aging Grumman LLVs in the U.S. Postal Service mail truck fleet have been catching fire. This is the spontaneous combustion, combustion question of mail trucks, where they, they find them sitting on a couch with a lit cigarette in their hand. Well, if they had Just, a lit cigarette, I think we would know. Oh, right. It's not spontaneous combustion. Spontaneous combustion. Spontaneous conduction is a different thing. So Vice uh, got a four, got 4,000 pages of U.S. government documents about the maintenance of the Grumman LLV and found that since May of 2014, over 400 LLVs have caught on fire. Oh, that seems more than just a coincidence. It does. Uh, and the Postal Service has had hired two separate engineering firms to try to figure out what's going on, and there is no pattern. Really? The fires occurred in hot and cold climates, beginnings and ends of shifts, battery compartments, dashboards, and fuel pumps. Vehicles that were overdue for a checkup and vehicles that have been recently maintained. Rural and urban streets. Over the last six years, <laughs> hardly a week has gone by without a mail truck exploding into flames somewhere in the boundaries of the United States. It's a curse. Sometimes a multiple. Uh, on uh, June 13th, 2016, a dark day indeed for the Postal Service, LLVs caught fire in Houston, Texas, Okeechobee, Florida, and Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. August 29th of that year, there were also three fires. McKeesport, Pennsylvania, Tahlequah, Oklahoma, and Del Rio, Texas. On the very day we recorded that entry, there could have been multiple uh, multiple fires. Really? The Postal Service spokesperson refused to provide information about any injuries, <laughs> which can't be good, <laughs> right? Um, it, it Could this be a... Um terrorist attack well or a situation like in like in the jerk where um where the guy across the street is is shooting at navin r johnson and uh and keeps hitting oil cans and navin r johnson feels like there's a flaw in the cans uh and uh, it takes him a while to realize that uh that that the that the crazy Vietnam vet across the street is shooting at the cans? I mean, we can speculate all day. The, it, the, the fleet is famously overdue for replacement. What's the connection between all of the between a dashboard fire in a rural area where the truck has just been serviced and a battery fire in an urban area when the truck is overdue? I mean, the Occam's razor answer might be these trucks were only supposed to last for 27 years but but fire wouldn't they just stop working or the axle would fall apart or it's something? true like i was i have a uh i have one of those posh japanese toilet seats that that washes you off gives you a little bidet experience yeah and it's fantastic okay best 400 bucks i ever spent right. it's kind of nearing the end of its life and this morning as i was thinking Starting to spray up your nose as you walk into the bathroom <laughs> i think it, hopefully the remote just needs batteries but it may be a pump issue but i was thinking this morning if this dies, I hope it doesn't catch fire. I hope it just stops working. Right. I don't want my toilet seat to just catch fire when I'm sitting there. You know, here's an interesting thing. When my GMC RV caught on fire, it was because... Now, this is something you almost never hear, and I'm going to just reveal it to everyone now. Oh, you're about to hear it for the first time ever right here. When an alternator stops working, usually what the alternator does is stops uh, alternating. It stops um, 
well, it's re- not, re- recharging. It stops working. Yeah. yeah as, a, as a thing. When my alternator broke, it broke in a very unusual way, which was that it just sent direct current through itself to the electrical system of the truck. I assume that's bad for a truck. It was very bad. And it basically sent electrical gremlins in every direction, just melting wire that suddenly had all this current it wasn't meant to have. And uh, it started a fire in the dashboard, but also started problems throughout the vehicle. And so it might, let me just suggest that it might be faulty alternators. You're, you're going to diagnose this. I'm going to say at a distance. Based on, so I didn't read, I read a summary of the Vice article. You heard my summary of that summary of that article. But, you, but you feel like you've got you've to figure it out? I feel like, uh, I feel like alternators. That's where I'm going to, that's where I'm going to direct the search. And if I'm right, uh, I believe that I should be uh, hired by Vice. I think it's possible that it's sabotage. I have two theories. Sabotage. Oh. Uh, Listen, all y'all. First of all, it could be sabotage by the present administration. Who hates these trains. Who hates the... Who hates these cans. Who hates the post office. Right. Uh, alternately, it could be sabotage by fed up postal employees who want the government to hurry up and buy them a new set of mail trucks and therefore uh-huh. want to put the boxy old crappy ones out to pasture. Right. Motive means an opportunity. Right. All of them had it, but only one could have done it. I'm going to assemble all the suspects okay. in the drawing room. And? And we're going to get right down to who is lighting mail trucks on fire. Well, let's just do it right now. Who? Means who can afford to buy a, a book of matches? Incendiary devices? A book of matches, maybe some lighter fluid. Yeah. Almost everybody. Yeah, sure. Opportunity. I mean, that certainly seems to be in favor of the drivers. The driver has spends more time with an unobserved mail truck than, say, Ivanka Trump. Right, but the maintenance guys also are probably the ones that have even more cause to want new trucks because they're tired of slapping together these old LLVs, and they're in there all day. What if it's a fan of Omnibus who loves mail truck discourse and yep. knew that the one way to get us to talk more about mail trucks would be if they started... put him, Got him in the news again. If they started to light on fire. Yeah. And this guy's traveling all over the country from Del Rio, Texas, all the way to Myrtle Harbor, South Carolina. Yep, 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 yep. If you're listening and you're the mail truck bandit, please, we implore you, stop lighting... We, we understand your concerns, but please stop lighting mail trucks on fire. This is, this is not a solution. We are all bound together in a... Uh, intricate network of mutuality. That's right. That's right. A web of mutuality. It's inescapable. Didn't you hear what Dr. King said? You cannot escape the mutuality. Try though you might. Inescapable. How many times do we have to say it? Ask not for who the mail truck burns. It burns burns for for thee. And that concludes Omnibus Addenda Volume 9. Futurelings, we thank you for your financial pledges that have made this monumental project possible. We hope that access to these important addenda items has validated your decision to support the Omnibus. It is vitally important that you attach these updates to the original recordings you discovered in their proper context for the convenience of future browsing by your civilization. We hope that our civilization survives long enough for us to provide you with future addenda to the Omnibus.